The podcast about everything is an Hour of the Wolf studio production. Hi, this is Michael Allison. Welcome to the podcast about everything. a bad impression on her mind. In a better way, impart all the love things in your heart, for it's possible she may retort in kind. Remember, Granny's known you since a baby. And even though it's fun, would prove a shock. So respect her aged head. Stay the shovel and instead, paste your dear old sweet old grandma with a rock. Hi there. It's Mike Allison again along with my good buddies, Spike Jones and his City Slickers, inviting you to listen to another episode of Hubris here on the podcast about everything. Today we're going to be talking about Ed and Lorraine Warren. I know I promised you this a while back, and now we're finally going to do it. Sadly, it may seem like we're beating a dead horse with this, because they're no longer with us. And, you know, it's really not fair to talk about people who can't, ident- who can't defend themselves. But on the other hand, their misadventures in the world of the supernatural has generated something called the Conjuring Universe. And while it, as a source of films, of horror movies, has sort of petered out, uh, it's made millions and millions of dollars. So it's worth talking about Ed and Lorraine and their legacy and uh, if they were actually what they claimed to be. So let's get started. Ed Warren was born on September 7th, 1926, and was born and raised in the city of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, And he grew up on the toughest part of the town, which was the east side. That part of the city was known as the Bloody Bucket because it was a frequent hangout for hoods and gangsters. And when Ed was a boy, he said he lived in a haunted house from the age five until the age 12. His dad was a police officer and would explain to young Ed the strange occurrences witnessed in the home had a logical explanation. But of course, his dad never did come up with a logical explanation, allowing young Ed's imagination to run wild. There were times when Ed would be out playing, and if he returned to the house and no one was home, he he was afraid to enter it. He sometimes stayed outside for hours in the freezing cold weather. Ed would see ghosts, hear footsteps, pounding sounds, and rapping on walls frequently in the house. This scared him, but it also made him want to learn more about the types of phenomena that he thought he was encountering. When Ed was five, he claimed he saw an apparition a dot of light that grew until it became his family's landlady who had died the year before. In his book, The Demonologist, The Extraordinary Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren, Ed recalled that she was semi-transparent, wearing what looked like some sort of shroud, and then she vanished. Soon after, Ed was having dreams of dead relatives he'd never met, including an aunt who would send him messages about his future telling him that he would help many priests, but would never become a priest himself. I'm not a priest today, but I do work closely with them, he said in The Demonologist. His wife, Lorraine Warren, was born on January 31, 1927. She was born Lorraine 
Rita Mor Mor Moran in Bridgeport, Connecticut. She attended the prestigious Laurelton Hall Private School in Trumbull, Connecticut. She worked at various jobs during the war to help the war effort. Like Ed, Lorraine began having unusual experiences when she was young, too, but she just assumed everybody had those abilities. All that changed when she was 12. As she recalled in the book, The Demonologist, it was Arbor Day at her all-girls private school, and her classmates had just planned planted a sapling. Just as soon as they put the sapling in the ground, I saw it as a fully grown tree, filled with leaves blowing in the wind, she said. When a nun asked her why she was staring at the sky, Lorraine responded, I told her I was just looking up into the tree. Are you seeing the future, she asked me. Just as sternly, yes, I admitted, I guess I am. Ed and Lorraine both lived in Connecticut and met in 1944 when they were both just 16 years old. Ed worked as an usher at a movie theater that Lorraine and her mother frequented. They began dating, and soon after, Ed went off to fight in World War II. In 1945, when Ed was 17, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy. He had only been deployed for a total of four months when he was sent back on a 30-day survivor's lease after his ship went down in the North Atlantic Sea. It was during that short break that Ed and Lorraine got married. He then returned to the war. Ed and Lorraine got married on May 22, 1945, in Bridgeport, Connecticut. They have a daughter, Judy, who is married and lives in New Milford, Connecticut. After his World War II service, Ed attended art school. He attended a, an art school associated with the Yale School of Art. But he dropped out because he claimed his teachers knew nothing and had nothing to teach him. This gives us a little hint of Ed's true personality. He painted nautical scenes, country landscapes, and his real passion, haunted houses. He began touring the New England states with Lorraine, seeking out haunted houses to paint. One now famous house that he found was the Ocean-Born Mary House in Henniker, New Hampshire. Ed likes to relate the story as such. I was with Lorraine and another couple that we used to socialize with. We were probably about 19 or 20 years old at the time. We were traveling around New England trying to sell some of our paintings, which I did sell for tremendous prices of three or four dollars each. You have to remember that back then, gas was 12 cents a gallon and hot dogs cost a dime. A movie was a quarter. So the three or four dollars we made on each painting wasn't so bad after all. Anyway, we were driving through New Hampshire and I see this sign that says Henniker. I looked back at my friend Jerry, who was in the back seat, and said I had heard of a haunted house, the ocean-born Mary house, and that it was Henniker. Jerry looked at me and said, oh, come on, Ed, there must be a hundred Hennikers. Just then we rounded a corner and there was a sign, this is the only Henniker on earth. So I guess that solved that argument. Anyway, we asked some college kids where the house were, was, and they gave us directions to it. We pulled up front, and man, I gotta tell you, it sure did look haunted from the outside. I said to Jerry, who was a real skeptic up to this time, hey Jerry, why don't you go up to the door and see if they'll let us in? His response was, are you crazy? There's no way I'm going up there. So I did the logical thing. I threw, threw Lorraine out of the car and locked the doors. I knew if anybody could get us in, it would be Lorraine with her Irish charm and all. We watched as she knocked on the door. We saw this light in a window high above, and then the light reached the lower level and finally the door. We could barely make it out, but soon we saw Lorraine motioning us to come up. To make a long story short, we all got into the house and spoke with a Mr. Roy, the caretaker. This was the first time Lorraine ever had a psychic experience in a haunted house. She astrally projected out of her body and hovered above us. After the war, the Warrens had to figure out how to make a real living. Each of us had skills as landscape artists, and we each harbored a desire to paint. Lorraine said, Ed had taken art classes, so she said we began our marriage under the assumption that we would be artists. So they continued to paint landscapes and haunted houses. Um, 
that Ed would go to the house, they would sketch them, knock on the door, offer the sketch for information about the haunting, Lorraine said. If the story was compelling enough, they'd actually paint the house and then sell that artwork later. They spent about five years going around the United States painting and investigating haunted houses. Despite her early experiences with clairvoyance, Lorraine didn't believe in ghosts until later, later in life. After she and Ed began visiting and painting haunted houses, in the beginning, I was more than a bit wary of the people whom we spoke to, she said in the book, The Demonologist. I thought they were kind of suffering from overactive imaginations or were just making things up to get attention. But when she noticed the similarities between the experiences, including from people who, who had never met and who were from opposite sides of the country, she became a believer and claimed to see other people's auras. Lorraine described it like this. A person's aura is the supernatural glow that emanates from every living being. It is the energy that surrounds us. It even surrounds our pets. I can tell quite a lot about a person from that glow. You see, the aura produces different colors, blue hues, green, red, yellow, and various other shades. They have different intensities to them. Some are bright, some are dull. Sometimes they spark out like fireworks. From the conditions of the aura, I can tell a lot about a person. I can tell if they're religious or not, if they have emotional troubles, or even if they have a violent temper. So Ed and Lorraine Warren founded the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952. They founded it to document their cases, and they also created the Occult Museum, which was a space in their home, uh, where they lived in Monroe, Connecticut. It adjoined Ed's office, and it was designed to house haunted objects and the files and tapes from their investigations. Today, the NSP, yeah, NESPR is run by the Warrens' daughter, Judy, and their son-in-law, Tony Sparrow. And its website keeps a log of some of the cases the Warrens investigated, including that of an alleged werewolf and an infamous possessed doll named Annabelle. And in their basement, they created their very own Museum of the Occult. It's heavily adorned with satanic objects and demonic artifacts, but the center's primary purpose was to serve as a base of operations for the couple. According to Ed and Lorraine Warren, they investigated over 10,000 cases over the course of their careers with doctors, nurses, researchers, and police at their assistance. Both Warrens claim to be uniquely qualified to investigate strange and unusual phenomena. As the Warrens began taking on bigger and bigger cases, skepticism about the couple began to grow. To quiet critics, Lorraine agreed to be tested by Dr. Thelma Moss, an actress-turned-psychologist and parapsychologist who is someone who researches the mind with an interest in the occult. They, she worked in a UCLA lab studying things like Kirlian photography. She found that Lorraine's clairvoyance was far above usual, adding to the, to the demonologist in a locked case in the occult museum, there's a Raggedy Ann doll named Annabelle with a positively do not open warning sign on it. The doll may not look menacing, but all the items in the occult museum, the doll is the one to be most frightened of. According to the Warren's report, a 20-year-old nurse who received the doll as a gift in 1968 noticed that it began to change positions on its own. Then she and her roommate started finding parchment paper with written messages saying things like, help me, help us. As if that wasn't strange enough, the girls claimed that they didn't even have a parchment paper in their house. Next, the dolls started showing up in different rooms and leaking blood. Unsure of what to do, the two women turned to a medium who said the doll was being occupied by the spirit of a young girl named Annabelle Higgins. That's when Ed and Lorraine Warren took an interest in the case and contacted the women. 
they evaluated the doll and they came to the immediate conclusion that the doll itself was not in fact possessed, but was being manipulated by an inhuman presence. The Warren's evaluation was that the spirit in the doll uh, was looking to possess a human host. So they took it from the woman to keep them safe. While they were driving away with the doll, the brakes in their car failed several times. They pulled over and doused the doll in holy water and say that after that, their car troubles stopped. According to the Warrens, Annabelle the doll continued to move around their house on her own too. So they locked her in a glass case and sealed it with a binding prayer. But even now, visitors to the Warrens Museum say that Annabelle continues to cause mischief and may even take revenge on skeptics. One couple of non-believers reportedly got into a motorcycle accident soon after visiting the museum, with the survivors saying they had been laughing about Annabelle just before the crash. The haunted Annabelle doll that the couple is famous for is certainly an extremely creepy story. That's probably why the whole story first appeared as an episode of The Twilight Zone, which aired seven years before the Warrens ever met Annabelle, the Raggedy Ann doll. The episode, called Living Doll, was part of the show's fifth season. It didn't take Ed and Lorraine Warren long to land more high-profile cases. While the Perrin family served as an inspiration behind the film The Conjuring, the Warrens saw it as a very real and terrifying situation. In January of 1971, the Perrin family, Carolyn and Roger, and their five daughters moved into a large farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island. The family noticed strange occurrences happening right away that only got worse over time. It started with a missing broom that escalated into full-fledged angry spirits. In researching the home, Carolyn claimed to discover that the same family had owned it for eight generations, during which time many died by drowning, murder, or hanging. When the Warrens were brought in, they claimed the house was haunted by a spirit named Bathsheba. In fact, a woman named Bathsheba Sherman had lived on the property in the 1800s. She was claimed to be a Satanist suspected of involvement in the murder of a neighbor's child. Whoever the spirit was, she perceived herself to be mistress of the house, and she resented the competition my mother posed for that position, said Andrea Perrin. According to Andrea Perrin, the family encountered several other spirits in the house that made their beds levitate and smelled like rotting flesh. The family avoided going into the basement because of cold, stinking presence. The things that went on there were so incredibly frightening, Lorraine recalled. The Warrens made frequent trips to the house over the years that the Perrin family lived there. However, unlike the movie, they didn't perform an exorcism. Instead, they performed a seance that had Carolyn Perrin speaking in tongues before she was allegedly thrown across the room by spirits. Shaken by the seance, and confirmed by for his wife's mental health, Roger Perrin asked the Warrens to leave and stop investigating the house. According to Andrea Perrin's account, the family finally saved up enough to move out of the house in 1980, and the haunting stopped. The case featured in the original Conjuring movie was a real-life haunting claimed to be experienced by the Perrin family. Both Lorraine Warren and one of the Perrin children have confirmed the movie is accurate. However, the woman who currently owns the house where the parents live, Norma Sutcliffe, says the movie is complete fiction and ended up, ended up making an hour-long video about all of them. Though their other investigations remain intriguing, the Amityville horror case was Ed and Lorraine Warren's claim to fame. In November 1974, a 23-year-old Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr., the eldest child of the DeFeo family, murdered his entire family in their beds with a 35 caliber rifle. 
The infamous case became the catalyst for the claim that, the, that spirits haunted the Amityville house. 1976, George and Kathy Lutz and their two sons moved into the Long Island house and soon believed a demonic spirit was residing with them. George said he witnesses his wife transforming into a 90-year-old woman and levitating above the bed. They claimed to see slime seeping out of the walls and a pig-like creature with glowing eyes that menaced them. Even more unsettling, knives flew off counters, pointing right at the members of the family. The family walked around with a crucifix reciting the Lord's Prayer, but to no avail. One night, their final night there, they said banging as loud as a marching band emanated throughout the house. After 28 days, they couldn't take it anymore and fled. The Warrens never invited to investigate the house, but showed up anyways with an entourage. Ed and Lorraine Warren visited the house 20 days after the Lutzes left. According to the Warrens, Ed was physically pushed to the floor, and Lorraine felt an overwhelming sense of demonic presence. Along with their research team, they claimed to have captured a spirit picture of a little boy on the stairway. The story became very high profile. It uh, launched its own conspiracy theories, books, and films, including the 1979 classic, The Amityville Horror. Most famous of all for the couple is the fact that they consulted on this haunting. The book that told the story of this haunting and mentioned the Warrens by name was published by Jay Anson, who was a fiction writer in 1977, and it went viral in pop culture. The book became a bestseller, and a movie adaptation starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder became the highest-grossing independent movie of all time. The book and the movie have also been famously debunked as based on a true story. The Lutzes claimed that they found demonic hoof prints in the snow, but the weather records showed that there hadn't been any snowfall for them to see the prints in. The book details extensive damage to the home's doors and hardware. The original locks, doorknobs, and hinges were actually untouched, but after fleeing the house, the Lutzes uh, were able to let neighborhood kids get in for the 20 days before the Warrens and their entourage showed up. So there was damage done to the house. As a matter of fact, one person said it looked like it had been wrecked. The film and book show police being called to the house, but investigator Joe Nickel writes, during the 28-day siege that drove the Lutz family from the house, they never once called the police. It's also worth noting that William Weber, Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s attorney, has publicly stated the story was made up between George and Kathy Lutz. The Lutzes found themselves financially underwater and needed to unload the house in a weak real estate market. The Warrens eventually showed up to investigate the house, bringing their film crew from a local news affiliate, the investigation has been referred to as a psychic slumber party by skeptics like Joe Nickel, but Lorraine sensed great malevolence in the house insisted it was infested with para demonic paranormal entities. This TV appearance cemented the Warrens as experts in the field of paranormal research, despite the fact that they presented no physical proof of their findings. photo of a ghost boy taken at the house is said to be proof of the haunting but it's largely thought to be a hoax. And then you can find this photo easily uh, by Googling it. You'll see a sh strange, shaky image of a little boy with eerie, glowing eyes. But when you zoom in on it, you'll discover that the glow in the eyes were actually reflections because the little kid's wearing glasses. And uh, there were kids running all through the house during this time period, because the, the neighbor kids could break in, and they may have photographed one of those kids and tried to pass it off as a spirit. But meanwhile, in August 1977, the Hodgkin family reported strange things happening in their house in Enfield, England. Knocking came from all over the house, causing the Hodgkins to think that perhaps burglars were prowling around the residence. 
They called the police to investigate, and an officer who arrived said to have witnessed a chair rising up and moving on its own. The events of the Enfield Poltergeist case began in August 1977, shortly after the Warrens investigated the Amityville haunting. The case centered mostly around 11-year-old Janet Hodgkins, who was allegedly tormented and possessed by a poltergeist. The evil spirit was responsible for knocking sounds, strange voices, growling, levitation, and throwing objects across the room. The story became a media sensation and led to numerous investigations of Janet, her sister Peggy, and the Enfield home. We'll come back to the story of the Enfield older guys, but first, we're going to stop for a word from our sponsor. See you soon. Welcome back to the podcast. Yay, capitalism. So we were talking about the Enfield poltergeist haunting. Over the years, its authenticity has come into question, partially because most of the paranormal activity occurred only when Peggy and Janet were present. Uh, one of the standard explanations for poltergeist is uh, poltergeist phenomena happens in a home where there are teenage children. Audio recordings and photographs in, taken during nearly two years of investigations have been scrutinized. Even Janet herself admitted to fabricating a small portion of the events that took place in the home. Sometimes Legos and marbles flew across the room and were actually hot to the touch. Folded clothes leapt off of tabletops to fly around the room. Lights flickered, furniture fun, spun, the sound of barking dogs emanated from empty rooms. Then inexplicably, a fireplace ripped itself out of the wall, attracting the attention of paranormal investigators from all around the world. Remember, all of this was being publicized on the nightly news. And that included Ed and Lorraine Warren. But as usual, they showed up a little late. The Warrens, who, investigate, who visited Enfield in 1978, were convinced it was a real poltergeist case. Those who deal with the supernatural day in and day out know the phenomena that are there. There's no doubt about it, said Ed. Then two years after they started, the mysterious activity, called the Enfield haunting, abruptly ended. However, the family maintains that they didn't do anything to stop it. The second in the series of Conjuring movies is about this haunting in Enfield. The real family involved in that haunting did, did get caught faking evidence of the haunting as shown in the movie. Also, like in the movie, police officers involved really did claim to see objects move on their own at the time. However, however as far as the Warrens were involved, people involved in the case say that unlike the movie, in real life, the Warrens showed up uninvited and left a day later. Billing itself as being ripped from the true case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren, the sequel to The Conjuring claims to follow the duo to Brimsdown, Enfield, England, where they proceed to investigate one of the most famous cases of poltergeist activity ever recorded. There's only one little problem. A gentleman named Guy Leon Playfair, who is a charter member of the Society for Psychical Research, one of the chief investigators of the Enfield poltergeist case said they showed up uninvited, stayed for a day, and alleges that they manufactured their own paranormal evidence simply to make money out of it. In an interview, Guy Leon Playfair said, I bumped into Ed Warren once or twice, Ed and Lorraine, and I got the impression that Ed Warren was, well, he, and then he laughed, you can fill in your own expletives. I wasn't impressed at all. Lorraine is still living, so I'll refrain from commenting on her, but she was very, well, she was quite pleasant when I met her. They did turn up once, I think, at Enfield, and all I can remember is Ed Warren telling me that he could make a lot of money for me out of it. So I thought, well, that's all I need to know from you, and got myself out of his way as soon as I could. I said I was not impressed. 
He didn't spend, I don't think he went there more than once. And I did read somewhere a transcript of a lengthy interview, which he's alleged to have with one of the girls, which they couldn't remember giving him. And it was describing all sorts of marvelous wonders, which I don't think ever really happened. I think he was a complete, um, well, go ahead and fill in your own word. In 1986, Janet and Jack Smurl reported demonic entities were terrorizing them in their home. The Warrens were called in to investigate the demonic activity, which included Jack's account of being assaulted by one of the demons. In an interview with a local news outlet, Ed said that the demonic entity was powerful, intangible, and very dangerous. However, not everyone was willing to accept the Smurls and Warrens' statements. Paul Kurtz, a philosophy professor at the State University of New York, Buffalo, drew connections between the Smurls and the Lutz family in the Amityville case. Kurtz said of the Warrens, they have no credentials in the scientific or parapsychological communities, and further added, there's no explanation for the Smurl house, but I wouldn't simply assume it's a haunting. It seems to us that a great to-do has been made about it, and we wonder if it's like the Amityville horror hoax which is based on imagination rather than actual haunting. Even members of the clergy brought in for the usual blessings and exorcisms reported nothing unusual happening there. The Warrens, however, never wavered in their belief that the Smurl home was severely haunted. The Smurl family, they said, experienced the haunting so strong and malevolent, they saw claw marks appear on the walls. When the Catholic Church refused to grant them an exorcism, they called the Warrens. When the Scranton Catholic Diocese eventually sent someone to investigate, that priest wasn't uh, impressed by the Warrens at all. As a matter of fact, he's quoted as saying, they weren't sincere, were not what they were purported to be, and were given to sensationalizing. He chuckled when explaining that when he went to one of their lectures, they saw him and toned down their act. So then he wore disguises when he went to see their future talks so they wouldn't recognize him. You'll notice that between the clergy and experts in paranormal activity investigations, um, none of these people were particularly impressed by the profoundly Catholic Ed and Lorraine Warren. It might have something to do with the fact that every book that was published about these cases was not written by Ed and Lorraine Warren. They were all ghost written by horror fiction writers. And inevitably, Ed said, I don't care what you write, just make sure it's done and proofed in time to be published at Halloween. According to Lorraine, the real story of the haunting in Connecticut involved the Snedeker family, who purchased a room near the hospital where their son was receiving cancer treatment. As it turned out, the home was formerly a funeral home, and the family claimed that they began experiencing the usual strange sounds, demonic entities, possessions, etc., etc. The Snedeker haunting came with his own book, In a Dark Place, which was written by Ed and Lorraine Warren, Cameron Reed, Al Snedeker, and Ray Garten. The Warrens hired Garten, a horror novelist, to help shape Snedeker's narrative. According to Ben Radford, writing for Live Science, Garten told Horrorbound magazine that upon interviewing the family, he realized their stories weren't matching up. When Garten voiced his concerns to Ed Warren, the demonologist allegedly replied, oh, they're crazy. Then he added, you've got some of the story. Just use what works and make the rest up. Just make it up and make it scary. We've got to get the book out by Halloween. Some have also suggested that drugs and mental illness factored into the Snedeker case rather than actual paranormal activity. In 1986, the Warrens investigated the funeral home uh, that was infested with demons. Uh, the Snedeker family complained of strange behavior in their son, violent, sometimes sexual attacks on both of them by unseen entities and apparitions. This haunting was investigated by the Warrens became the basis of the movie A Haunting in Connecticut in 2009. The author, who worked with the Snedeker family, once again 
uh, later recanted the story and said the family involved was going through some serious problems like alcoholism and drug addiction. They couldn't keep their story straight. I became frustrated. It's hard writing a nonfiction book when all the people involved are telling you different stories. The Snedeker family also had a neighbor living in the upstairs apartment during their stay at the haunted home. The neighbor never had a paranormal experience. No one who has lived in the Snedeker house has had a paranormal experience since the Snedekers left. The Warrens heavily promoted this case and rode the wave of nascent satanic panic and booked appearances on daytime talk shows like Sally Jesse Raphael. Ed's overbearing personality sometimes emerged, like an exchange with investigator Joe Nickel. Though Nickel rejects the term debunker to describe his work, his evidence-based investigations of paranormal events has not yet uncovered any miracles, ghosts, or monsters. His assistance on documented facts led to a heated exchange with Ed and Lorraine Warren on The Sally Show in 1992. They appeared with the Snedeker family on the show, uh, and they were promoting their book, In a Dark Place. Joe Nichols stated, I've investigated haunted houses for some 20 years. I've not met a house that I thought was haunted. I think the Warrens have not met a house they didn't think was haunted. The houses that sincere people report they think are haunted usually follow a certain pattern. This is a hodgepodge of the sort of ghost tale, poltergeist, part demon, part this, part that. We saw a similar pattern with the Amityville Horror, a case the Warrens thought was genuine. It turned out to be a blatant hoax concocted over several bottles of wine. Joe Nickel continues to cite the Warrens as an example of exploitive and harmful charlatans. He told Blake Smith, the host of the Monster Talk podcast, the next thing you know, the Warrens have convinced everybody there would be demons involved. Lorraine would go into one of her light trances, which would mean she would just close her eyes and haul off and say something. She would sense some demonic presence. The two of them would talk a good talk about this. You see, these poor unsuspecting people who, first of all, didn't know anything about the paranormal and were not aware that there are no haunted places, only haunted people, as Robert Baker used to say, when you have someone who's an expert explaining to them that these are different kinds of spirits and this and that and the other, they don't know any better. They think maybe these people knew what they were talking about. It's interesting that in every case of this, there were Catholic families. Ed and Lorraine would show up and convince them that it was really demonic and that they needed to use their Catholic powers of exorcism and holy water and so forth. They were converted into a demonic book and then they would get a ghostwriter. All the shenanigans would be restyled and exaggerated and spooky elements thrown in for better book sales. Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was arrested and tried for killing his landlord, Alan Bono, in 1981. Johnson's defense argued that he was not in control of his actions because he was demonically possessed. Prior to Bono's murder, Johnson's fiance, Debbie Glitzel, had an 11-year-old brother named David who allegedly began showing signs of demonic possession, and Glitzel called in the Warrens to help. Ed and Lorraine brought in priests and performed three lower exorcisms, whatever that is. Ed Warren noted that one at one point there were 43 demons inside David. While the priests involved denied any exorcisms had actually transpired in the Galtzell home, David began to improve, especially after receiving counseling and moving to a private school. Johnson was not so lucky, as a few of the alleged demons exercised from David's body purportedly entered his. He reportedly began growling and hissing, as well as slipping on and off into trances for a period of months before killing Bono with a five-inch pocket knife. The devil-made-me-do-it plea was unsuccessful, and Johnson eventually went to prison for his crime. In 2007, Carl Glotzell, David's older brother, attempted to sue Lorraine Warren and Gerald Brittle, 
authors of The Devil in Connecticut, for unspecified damages. As part of his suit, Glatzel claimed his family was manipulated by the Warrens and that they and Brittle concocted a phony story about demons in an attempt to get rich and famous at the Glatzel's expense. Ed and Lorraine Warren never charged money for their investigations. Instead, they made money from giving lectures at colleges and by licensing the rights to their stories for film, TV, and book projects. They claimed they saw themselves as educators. The Warrens began giving lectures because, according to their book, The Demonologist, there was a growing interest in the occult in the late 1960s. And many of the people they saw affected by dark phenomena were college students. They hoped that, through their lectures, they might discourage people from exploring the occult in the first place. Ed and Lorraine Warren claimed they investigated 10,000 paranormal cases in their lifetimes. If they invested one case per day, this would take them 27.3 years. That's without weekends off. As we can see from their books and the Conjuring universe of movies, some of these cases took days or even months to resolve. Ed Warren also had a day job. He was a school bus driver. The couple had a child, and they wrote books, made media appearances, and operated their occult museum out of their home. How could they possibly have accomplished all of this? The New England Skeptical Society investigated many of the Warrens' claims. One founder, Dr. Stephen Novella, who is a neurologist, a professor at Yale School of Medicine, and also the host on a fabulous podcast called The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, said you met them and, oh my God, this guy had no idea what he was doing. I don't know the, he didn't know the first thing about anything relevant to paranormal investigation or ghost phenomena. Described the Warren's Occult Museum as full of off-the-shelf Halloween junk, dolls, and toys. For example, one of the things besides the terrifying Raggedy Ann doll, Annabelle, who's supposedly clutching fingers people could feel around their throat, even though Raggedy Ann dolls don't have any fingers, um, was a copy of the Necronomicon, claimed to be the evil and most satanic book ever written. The issue that, of the copy of the Necronomicon that they have, once again, chained down underneath a glass uh, case to keep people from touching it and becoming possessed, is a fictional book created by the horror writer H.P. Lovecraft and later published as a separate item by uh, a publishing company who hired illustrators to basically make the thing up. But there it was inside the Warren's uh, Supernatural Museum. The Warrens refused to allow members from the Skeptical Society to shadow them on paranormal investigations or to examine the evidence the Warrens widely claimed to have proving the existence of paranormal phenomena. When pressed, Ed Warren said, you can't have scientific evidence for a spiritual phenomena. It's an interesting dodge, but it's at least logical. The Warrens themselves claim they once encountered a werewolf demon. They have an entire book about this case in which they specifically say they have exhaustive documentation backing up their claims. They never share that documentation. Why? If you're a paranormal investigator working on a case with a real-life werewolf demon, wouldn't you at least take its picture? Ed and Lorraine also claim they had video evidence of the white lady. Everybody has a white lady. We have two or three right in the immediate vicinity of where I'm broadcasting from. A local legend about a ghostly lady haunting the Union Cemetery in Connecticut. If they have a ghost on video, why did they never show it to the public? Once again, Dr. Stephen Novella from the New England Skeptical Society says he was only allowed to view the video at the Warrens' home, and even then they're seen, they seemed very suspicious. Their pace, pace de resistance is Ed's video 
of the famous White Lady of the Union Cemetery in Easton, Connecticut. Uh, they were only able to view this tape at their at the Warrens' home because Ed refused to give it to us for analysis, which is a common theme in their investigations. The tape shows an apparent white human figure moving behind some tombstones. Like videos of UFOs, Bigfoot, and the Loch Ness Monster, however, the figure is at that perfect distance and resolution so that a provocative shape can be seen, but there's no details which would aid in any kind of identification. Ed Warren has not investigated the video with any scientific rigor and refuses to allow others to do it. Despite Ed's insistence that he was engaged in scientific research, he continues to jealously hoard his alleged evidence rather than allow it to be critically analyzed, as is necessary in genuine scientific endeavors. After the Warrens died, their son-in-law, Tony Sparrow, did release the video. The Warren Occult Museum contains haunted and demonic objects from cases where it seems like it would be extremely easy to get verifiable uh, evidence of the paranormal if these cases were real. For, for instance, their museum, the Warrens had a vampire coffin from a modern-day vampire they claimed to have met. They couldn't get hard evidence from a vampire, but somehow they got their hands on his coffin. We're going to pause now for another sponsor break, and when we come back, we'll move into our conclusion on this story of Ed and Lorraine Warren. And we're back. So, after the Warrens' deaths, their son-in-law, Tony Spera, continued to run their uh, museum of occult objects out of their home in uh, New Milford, Connecticut. That is, until recently, when the entire enterprise was shut down by the local authorities, who basically confronted Sparrow with the fact that the Warrens had never gotten zoning for it to hold a tourist attraction, and with the notoriety brought about by the films from the Conjuring universe of films, uh, there was so much uh, tourism and nuisance traffic that the neighbors in the neighborhood complained. This was a residential neighborhood. So it was shut down, and Tony Sparrow moved it and has added to it ever since, creating his own particular uh, form of museum of uh, occult and unusual objects. He also continues to run the New England Society for Psychical Research. And if you go to their website, you'll see that he has surrounded himself with uh, a large number of priests from a spinoff of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, it's a, a sort of a form of orthodoxy that actually was recently disavowed by the Vatican. So he has these priests performing exorcisms. He has psychics. He has trance mediums. He has tarot card readers. He has quite an entourage of people surrounding him to continue the ghost hunting of his in-laws, the Warrens. Now that's all well and good. And you know, the the, the movies and books have made a lot of money for the Warrens and their estate. But there's some other issues. Beyond the claims that the Warrens fabricated at least part of each famous haunting they were involved in, there's extremely troubling claims that Ed Warren groomed a 15-year-old girl he met while he was working as a bus driver, and eventually they had a 40-year-long relationship. The Warrens officially said they moved that girl into their house because she had nowhere else to go. According to Judith Penny, a woman who's now in her 70s, she lived in Ed and Lorraine Warren's home for 40 years. During all this time, the Warrens claimed that Penny either was their niece or just a poor girl that they took in out of the goodness of their hearts. However, Judith Penny claims she was intimate with Ed Warren throughout the 40 years she lived with the couple. She also stated that Lorraine approved of their intimacy. If things weren't bad enough already, Judith Penny claims at one point she became pregnant with Ed Warren's child. And instead of being there for Penny, 
Judith claimed that the Warrens convinced her to end the pregnancy since the resulting scandal would ruin their business. Still, though, Penny also claimed that Ed abused Lorraine during their marriage. When it comes to all of Penny's claims, it it has to be noted that she made her allegations after Ed died, during a time when Lorraine was in very bad health. Lorraine herself passed away in 2019. It's also unclear whether any or all of Penny's statements might be true. She alleged that she was arrested in 1963 after someone reported her relationship with Ed to the local police. The Hollywood Reporter noted at the time, an attorney for the studio has asserted in court papers that a disgruntled author and a producer was suing the studio over profits from the franchise and were pushing the story of the Warrens' personal lives as part of a vendetta. However, and this is the strangest part, when Lorraine Warren signed on to consult on the Conjuring movies, she got a contract that states the movies will not feature negative information about the Warrens, including sex with minors, child pornography, prostitution, or any form of sexual assault. The Hollywood Reporter consulted an entertainment industry attorney who said mentioning specific sex crimes like this is something she's never seen before in a contract. So, the final mystery is not whether Ed and Lorraine Warren were psychic ghost hunters and investigators of unusual phenomena, whether their interview with a werewolf, their their vampire coffin, or any of these things were actually real. But actually, who were Edwin Lorraine Warren. Were they the pious couple, profoundly Catholic, who they promoted themselves as, saving the world from infestation from demons? Or were they something else entirely? Perhaps we'll never know. We want to thank you for listening to the podcast about everything. It's our ambition to continue to engage with people from all walks of life and to engage with them on a variety of subjects. The podcast about everything can be heard on Anchor, iTunes, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook at the podcast about everything and on Twitter at the podcast about three. Be sure and hit those like buttons and subscribe buttons. Our theme music is Electronic Rock King Around Here by Alex Grohl, courtesy of our friends at Pixabay. Pixabay is a great place for royalty-free music, sound effects, and photography. That's all for now. See you next time on the podcast about everything.